I think there are some concerns that the EU is going to pass some really broad sweeping measures without really thinking through the long-term investment consequences, both for natural gas and for renewable energy. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Energy prices are soaring in Europe, driven largely by the uncertainty surrounding Russian gas exports. Exacerbating the situation was an announcement in early September that Russia would not reopen its Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is a major supplier of gas to Europe in general and Germany in particular. Now, as winter looms, European governments are scrambling to devise policies to minimize the impact of rising energy costs to both their economies and to individual consumers. Needless to say, Europe's ability to manage this crisis could have a significant impact on European countries' approach to the conflict in Ukraine. Putin is very deliberately using gas and energy exports as a way to hit back at Europe and break Europeans' steadfast support for Ukraine. Joining me to discuss Europe's energy crisis, the EU's response thus far, and the political impact of rising energy costs in Europe is Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow in the Energy, Security, and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., We kick off with a discussion of the state of play of energy prices in Europe before discussing the potential remedies and consequences of energy shortages and price spikes. This conversation is obviously very timely, and if you are listening to this episode contemporaneously, that is at least before September 19th, then stay tuned for a special week of programming on the podcast starting September 19th for the United Nations General Assembly. Each day, I'll bring you the news and context and analysis you need to understand events at the United Nations General Assembly and surrounding events in New York City as they unfold. I'll be joined on the podcast each day by thought leaders, analysts, and other people with interesting takes on the news of the day coming out of the 77th United Nations General Assembly. To get these special daily episodes as soon as they are released, simply subscribe or follow the podcast if you've not done so already. For now, here is my conversation with Ben Cahill, Senior Fellow in the Energy, Security, and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Just sort of 
explain or paint the picture of the energy crisis in Europe right now? You know, how bad is it? How is it being felt or experienced by individuals in Europe? Well, right now we have a price shock in Europe, which runs the risk of turning into a real supply shock this winter. If we take a step back, starting last summer and into the fall, we saw a huge run-up in natural gas and electricity prices in Europe. So this actually happened well before Russia's war in Ukraine. Russia basically stopped sending as much natural gas to the continent, especially with short-term supplies. And we started to see a pretty dramatic run-up in natural gas prices around that time. Gas prices actually quadrupled between July and December of last year. So all this happened well before the war. And since then, things have really gone haywire. We've seen just a massive run-up in natural gas prices. And because natural gas really sets the electricity price in Europe, it's kind of the marginal supplier, it's had a big impact on power prices. And that's being felt by ordinary citizens, by businesses who use natural gas for industrial demand, factories and the like. And of course, the risk is that things are going to get much worse this winter. So far, the countries in Europe have really focused on trying to find alternative gas supplies, trying to displace Russian gas as much as they could to build up storage to prepare for the winter as much inventory as possible. Um, But in recent weeks, we've seen full shutdown now of the Nord Stream pipeline from Russia to Europe. That is the main source of pipeline supplies for Germany and for the rest of the continent. And so things have gotten dramatically worse in a short period of time. Are there specific countries in Europe in which this crisis is having a bigger impact than others? The dependence on Russian gas really varies a lot throughout the continent, but you have a small number of countries that are extremely dependent on Russian natural gas, more than 75% of their total imports. Then you have economies like Germany, which typically gets more than half of its imports from Russia. And those are the countries that are most exposed. In many cases, they don't really have great options. Some of them are landlocked. Many of them don't have liquefied natural gas or LNG import terminals. They can't easily import LNG from abroad. They've been linked to Russia through pipeline links um, for many years. And so those are the countries that are most exposed. So, you know, Germany is Europe's largest economy. They're highly exposed to Russian gas. And also natural gas plays a big role heating homes, but also providing fuel for industry. So the cutoff of Russian gas supplies poses a big threat to the German economy through multiple inventions. And then in general, the countries in Eastern and Central Europe are quite dependent on Russian gas. So we've seen this coming for quite a long time. The threat of shutting down Nord Stream 1 has become a reality as of September 5th, I believe. How has the EU responded thus far to the shutdown of Nord Stream 1 specifically, and to more broadly, these ever-increasing energy prices? It's been apparent for some time that there was a real shock to the energy relationship between Russia and Europe, and there's been a fundamental break in the relationship between the two. And when the war started, the obvious risk was that things would get worse, and at some point there was a risk of a real full shutdown of Russian gas supplies to the continent. And I think in recent months, European leaders are essentially on a wartime footing, trying to prepare for this coming winter, but also set plans in place for the next five years to try to get off Russian gas and stay off it. And that is a monumental task. I mean, there's this huge change to the energy system to try to displace the supplier on the order of Russia. What countries have done is 
set emergency plans. They're actually required to do this by new legislation a couple of years ago. So countries like Germany and Italy have multiple stage emergency plans in place to deal with cutoff of gas supplies. In many cases, they've set policies to try to reduce gas consumption, encouraging people to turn their thermostats down at home, use less heating at home, turning off signs at night, using less in municipal systems, and also setting plans in place to try to think about rationing. You know, if there is a real worst case scenario for this winter, how are we going to manage the situation of very limited gas supplies? And just last week, uh, EU energy ministers got together on September 9th to draft emergency plans and debate those discussions continue. You know, as we're speaking, as fall sets in, one thing I can't help but think is that to a certain extent, Europe's sort of ability to sort of absorb these high energy prices and deal with this shock is to a certain extent dictated by the weather. If we have a really cold winter coming up, that could potentially, you know, play into Putin's hands. That could certainly drive up demand. Whereas if we have a more milder winter, Europe might be able to muddle through this. Is that like a fair assessment? Yeah, that's true, Mark. Um, last winter, we were fortunate. We had a relatively mild winter in Europe, but things could certainly get worse this winter. And of course, the policymakers can't control the weather, so they prepare for the worst case scenario. One issue that could arise this year is we've seen in recent months that Europe has really drawn in all available LNG or liquefied natural gas supply. The prices are so strong that the incentives for the suppliers are just going to send everything to where they can. And in fact, in the first five months of this year, more than two-thirds of U.S. LNG supplies went to Europe. The problem is, what if we have a severe winter, this coming winter, in Europe? All that gas is needed there. But we also have a cold winter in Northeast Asia, in places like Japan, and South Korea, and China. At that point, the markets could get really tight. And prices could get even higher. In recent months, what policymakers have been doing is scrambling to try to refill gas inventories as much as possible so that they're in the best position possible heading into the winter. It's now at about 83% of capacity, which normally would be quite good heading into the winter. The EUI target was 80% by November 1st. We've already surpassed it, but it's not good enough. You know That would have been great in the situation where we had continued gas flows from Russia. Now, essentially, we're down to almost zero. It could drop into zero very soon. Even if we were at 100% of capacity, storage wouldn't be enough to satisfy the entire winter's demand. So it's a real risk. So if you believe that Putin is driving up prices to fray and fracture the EU alliance in pursuit of his own geopolitical goals and military goals in Ukraine, is the EU response thus far sufficiently resilient to resist those sort of machinations by Putin? there's been a pretty strong degree of solidarity within the EU. There's a clear sense that Russia is very much to blame for the situation. Obviously, EU policymakers made some mistakes. Some countries were way too dependent on Russia as almost their sole supplier of natural gas. So they put themselves in a difficult position, but I think they've done quite a good job so far of trying to stay unified, realizing that they face a real external threat. We need to come together and come up with some positive policy solutions. Now, obviously, there are some strains. Across the EU, you know, some countries invested in regasification terminals. They could have diversity of supply. Countries like the UK and Spain and Italy have many more of those regas terminals. Other countries like Germany failed to build them. So they're scrambling to do that now. They've commissioned five regasification terminals. But essentially, you have you know, an EU-wide proposal to cut 
gas consumption by 15% this winter. And already some countries are putting their hands up and saying, look, we already invested to increase our resilience, and you guys didn't. So it's not fair to expect us to say, pay the same price as other countries that failed to prepare for this kind of situation. And some countries in the continent are very interconnected, others are not. Unfortunately, the ones with the regasification terminals that import LNG aren't always connected to the countries that are going to be most exposed and need those alternative supplies. So the EU is focusing on increasing interconnections, increasing cooperation, investing in infrastructure and trying to build everything as fast as possible to make the system more fluid and connected. But the reality is some countries will be more exposed than others. And I think those tensions could rise. And the solutions that you just described are long-term solutions. Are there any short-term solutions for this coming winter beyond recommendations around rationing and reducing use that are being discussed as you know, solutions to weather this coming winter's you know, energy crisis? In terms of the near-term response, you know, there are proposals to do things like cap natural gas prices, look at redesigning the markets that we reduce the incredible volatility that we've had in prices recently. The EU is considering windfall profit taxes to take a slice of the excess revenue, as they call it, that companies are earning because of these high prices redistributed to consumers. The idea there is to help them cope with high prices. And they've looked at trying to delink natural gas from other sources of fuel for the electricity system to basically make electricity prices less dependent on what happens to the gas price. So there are a lot of proposals out there. Obviously, some of these are controversial. They have pretty significant implications in terms of the business climate and the investment climate. I think there are some concerns that the EU is going to pass some really broad sweeping measures without really thinking through the long-term investment consequences, both for natural gas and for renewable energy. So if you were designing the EU policy response, what would you include? The idea of a price cap is quite controversial. And, and just, just to be clear, a price cap it refers to the EU agreeing to pay no more than X number of euro or dollars per unit of gas from Russia, right? Yeah, that's the concept or natural gas in general from any supply source. And the idea here is that the prices have soared so much that there's just no market fundamentals that can explain it. We really haven't seen a supply disruption yet. This is all about the fear of what could happen. And so the price run-up has kind of gone beyond reason. It's well beyond the point where high prices actually are an effective tool suppressing demand. So I'm sympathetic to the idea of trying to put some sort of band on and contain the volatility. The windfall profits tax, I understand the rationale for it. I do think that creates some real challenges for companies. And they're thinking about all the uncertainty in Europe in the coming years and where they should make their investments. We have to keep in mind that a lot of utilities in Europe are already struggling. They're having to pay these extremely high gas and electricity prices. Some of them have already gone to governments for bailout packages to give financial aid. Uh, taking some of their profits away makes it more difficult for them to deal with the situation. So those things are think, a little bit more challenging. But, you know, the bottom line for me is demand management has to be a huge part of this. Part of this is about preparing the public in very frank terms about what it means to cut natural gas demand by 15%. This is not easy stuff to do. Part of it is just going to come from brutal market forces. I mean, the natural gas prices have gone so high that industry just can't pay these prices. Factories will have to close or curtail activity, which has obvious implications there in terms of economic growth, jobs, and everything else. It's, it's a difficult picture. 
but you need a combination of you know, market forces and then the policy response to help reduce demand. So in the coming weeks and months, what indicators will you be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not Putin's designs to drive up energy prices in Europe in order to have some sort of political impact beneficial to his geopolitical or military aims in Ukraine, whether or not that is succeeding? I think it's important to look at what the EU is able to pass and the degree of solidarity that we see with the European Union. Again, some of the stuff is controversial. It's going to be difficult for countries to reach consensus on it. But if they can come up with a coherent set of emergency measures that seem to have strong support, that indicates to me that there is still solidarity. There is a degree of cooperation coming together to deal with this situation. Countries trying to help each other out. But, you know, these prices are already very elevated. And we really haven't seen the actual supply shock yet. If we hit the winter and we have cold temperatures, we're going to get angry. You know, if they have to reduce their temperatures at home, they may start to see the real economic impact of these things. And that's when the political risks become real. There's always a possibility of protests and demonstrations, and politicians will be feeling the heat at home. So there's always this natural tendency to kind of take care of your own constituents or your own citizens first. And I think it's a tough ask to balance that against the kind of EU-wide solidarity issues. So Europe is feeling the brunt of this crisis, but energy markets obviously are global. What role might the United States play in helping to mitigate price shocks in Europe? As a result of the events in Europe, natural gas prices have risen a lot, not just in, in Europe, but in Asia as well. And the price signal is now really strong. So Europe has already drawn in a lot of LNG supplies. Fortunately, the U.S. has been ramping up its LNG exports a lot in recent years. And because of the flexible nature of U.S. LNG, a lot of it has flowed towards Europe. So already in the first half of this year, Europe has just taken up a huge share of U.S. LNG. It's more than two-thirds of total LNG supplies. And that's really just the price effect. It's not down to politics or political agreements between the U.S. and Europe. That's just sort of the market at work. But I think there are a lot of calls for the U.S. to try to accelerate LNG permits, get terminals built as quickly as possible, set up all those approvals so that more of the gas can flow to Europe. And the U.S. government has been pretty supportive of this so far. There are some risks that high natural gas prices in the U.S. could make this a little bit controversial, sending out more gas to the world. But I think across the board, there's a pretty clear sense that it's important for the U.S. to help European allies at this time. And you see political support for this, you're saying, correct? Well, back in March, the United States and EU came together and talked about practical ways to help Europe get through this energy crunch. And a lot of that really revolved around U.S. LNG exports. You know, they set a target for this year, which the United States has already surpassed. There was a lot of talk about joint agreements to help increase European purchasing power, try to get more deals signed. In the last six months or so, a lot of new long-term supply contracts have been signed for U.S. LNG, but actually a lot of it has come from Asia, not Europe. So European companies have been a little bit slow off the mark to sign long-term contracts. For a lot of reasons, I think that's starting to change. Some of the stuff just takes time. But there is a sense that this energy shock in Europe is really adding to the impetus to send more U.S. LNG to the continent and to just build capacity as fast as we can. Ben, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.